We, of course, uh, some of the men came to my house, since I'm a bachelor, this week, and uh, we watched Machine Gun Preacher. I have no machine gun, um, and I don't have one of those. He had a metal pulpit that had, it was almost like the truck beds with the, the knobs on it kind of thing. No one get any strange ideas. Okay, this is good. We don't need a strange thing here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of our God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word even this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the other day this week I was driving in my car, and that usually means I have the radio on, and my default is ESPN radio. And when there's nothing on the radio, like there's a commercial, I change the channels. And so when this happened, I changed the channels to one of my other default settings, and lo and behold, there was Herman Cain. And so I listened to a few minutes of Herman Cain. And for some reason, they were, because of the previous election, they were discussing Mormonism. What was interesting to me was that as they were talking about Mormonism, they were saying, I don't understand these Christians. They don't realize that Mormonisms are just, that Mormons are just like us. And Herman Cain tripped in and said, oh yes, if you look at what they believe, it says they believe in God the Father and in Jesus the Son, and they believe in the Holy Spirit, and you kind of like, uh, hello, let's take a pause. <laughs> so easily people can be deluded by words. They can be tricked by the use of words into thinking that someone is right with them in what they believe, when in reality they're not right with them in what they believe. The church in Corinth, that's sorry, Corinth, Colossae, was in the process of being deluded and deceived, and that is part of why Paul wrote this letter 
And that was part of why he talks about his ministry to them. So that they wouldn't fall into these traps. The big idea this morning is that Christ has all we need to live a God-pleasing life. Precisely because these people in Corinth, uh, I want to say Corinth because they were messed up too. But Colossae wasn't as messed up. They were being taught that they needed something besides Christ, in addition to Christ, in order to live a God-pleasing life. And Paul wants to remind them that no, it is all in Jesus. So from verses 1, 4, and 5, I want you to know that we are to fight deception with preaching and prayer. Paul continues discussing ministry and particularly his ministry, which I believe ought to be a pattern for how we do ministry. But he's talking about ministry here for Christians he had never met. He himself had never gone to Colossae. He had never gone to Laodicea. He had never gone to Heriopolis, which is going to be mentioned later in this letter toward the end. He had never gone there. He'd never met these people. He didn't know them by name, by face, only by reputation. And yet he says, how great a struggle he has for them. This is the noun connected to the verb we looked at last week, where he talked about in verse 29, about struggling with all his energy. That I talked about agonizing, that idea of the, the, the gymnastic contests that took place in Greece. Well, this is the noun form of that. He He feels this contest. He feels this struggle. He feels this fight as he goes on in his ministry for them. It's key. He sees himself as struggling for them, as exercising himself for them, not against them. He's not fighting kind of with them, but for them. The same word is used uh, later on when, when talking about the ministry of Epaphras for them as well. He uses the same, this struggle, this conflict that he is undergoing. And so I, I really believe from what's going on with this passage and that passage that it's about his, primarily his teaching ministry, his preaching ministry, but it's also used for prayer. Paul not only agonized himself in his preaching and teaching. I mean, it's kind of hard sometimes to think of you know, someone agonizing over a letter. But you've done that, haven't you? You've had a difficult email, perhaps, that you have to type out. There's a conflict. There's something difficult going on. And you want to agonize over every word to make sure that you say the right thing, that what you're saying is not going to, to really set the whole world ablaze as, as far as you know it. Okay? And so Paul agonized. He chose all of the words very carefully in this letter and in his preaching ministry. But Paul is also agonizing in prayer for these people. He's not just dishing, sending off letters here, take this, take this, take this, but he's also engaging in prayer. That's one of the things I love about sports. Offense, and defense. Okay? A good football team is one that is good offensively and is good defensively. Because, I guess as we saw with the U of A yesterday, they almost blew that game, man. <laughs> All right? 
I didn't watch it. I just kind of followed Kevin Kemper's updates on Facebook. <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> you know, but it's because they don't have as much defense that they had to score 49 points. They had to go crazy on the offense in order to win that game. I turned off the basketball game precisely because I saw in the second half, this is not going in a good direction, and somehow they won the game. I don't know how. Good ministry is not just offense or defense, so to speak. It's both. Solid ministry is both prayer and preaching, not one or the other. He'd never met them, and yet Paul is clearly concerned for them. It's, it's sort of like when you get the, the, the email updates from Claire. And sometimes you look and you go, who are they? <laughs> There's some of these people that come across, and, and we don't know them. And what Paul would say to us is, but you should be concerned for them. Don't just dismiss it because you don't recognize the name. Take a moment and, and pray for that person, for that situation. If we jump down to verse 4, we see a logical connector here. Okay, I want you to know how great the struggle I have for you. Then down in verse 4, he does, in order that, there's, there's the, the purpose. He's engaging in all of this agony, in all of this struggle with a purpose, in order that no one may delude you. He recognizes a clear and present danger in the life of the church in that city. Now he says that no one may delude you or deceive you, take you captive with plausible arguments. That's a key thing. This idea of the plausible argument. Because what they're saying sounds like it might make sense. Okay? They, they use powerful rhetoric to mask the lies that are being spoken. Now, sometimes the people who speak those lies believe those lies. They're, they're deceived themselves, but nonetheless, they're speaking lies and trying to deceive people either explicitly or implicitly. And what often happens is that people could use catchphrases to attract, or use common words, but with slightly different meanings. And it's particularly, you know, that whole Herman Cain conversation about the Mormon church. Really, what's going on is they use a lot of the same words you and I use, but they mean something completely different by it. They talk about Jesus, the Son of God, but they do not believe in Jesus, the eternal Son of God. There's a humongous difference between what we believe about Jesus and what they believe about Jesus. They believe he's a, he was a being that became God. And you will too. We don't believe that. We believe he's always been God. And we never will be God. And so... On the surface, it may look like a plausible argument. It may look like, you know, they're really just a, a different church as opposed to, you know, a cult. Sorry, Franklin Graham. They're still a cult. These plausible arguments delude people, deceive them, lead them astray. But then there's this odd phrase here. 
as well in verse 5. Though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. It's almost like he's writing to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read the same thing. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. As, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Remember, there was a person caught in a gross sin that they had not paid attention to, and it Paul tells them to. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, and he goes on. What Paul is saying, I believe, in both places is that because of our union with Christ, we are therefore united with one another. And so because of an action of the church, that whole idea of from uh, Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, that is with a, that's a core of the church because it's in the context of church discipline. And so Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, because the church court is assembled, I am with you and I am pronouncing judgment. I am among those pronouncing judgment on this man for his sin, that he must be removed for the church because he's unrepentant. Paul, in a similar way, is saying that, that when you gather together as the church, I'm with you. And what's significant about what he says in that is he says that he will be rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What he says here in verse 5 seems to indicate that generally speaking, though there are those who are seeking to deceive them, generally speaking, they're standing firm. Okay? That's why the tone of this letter is so different from the tone of Galatians. Remember, Galatians, he's like, you fools! <laughs> Who's deceived you? Who's bewitched you? It's almost like he's, he's beside himself. But here, you know, in Galatians, there's no, I thank God for anything. <laughs> okay? It's like he goes with a throat from the, from the get-go. Here, there's all kinds of, I thank God for you, and I pray for you, and this is a very positive letter, because I think while this, these false teachers are there, the majority of the church hasn't fallen for it. Most of them are still standing. Most of, the, most of them are still connected to the truth, even though he's issue, he issues some warnings. You have to remain in this. Don't be led astray by what they're about to say. Here it's only a minority that have been led astray. And so spiritual deception, then and now, was a clear and present danger. And then and now, it must be resisted with preaching and with prayer. What are we to preach? We see this, I think, particularly in verse 3, that Christ has all the knowledge and wisdom we need. This is where I get the title for the sermon, A Treasure House of Wisdom. Paul refers again to this great mystery, and, and previously he had said, um, our hope of glory, Christ in you, and now it's just Christ. Okay, The mystery of God, <clears throat> that which was secret and hidden, but now is revealed through the ministry of the apostles, Okay, it all centers in Christ. 
Christ is the one about whom the mystery is. And yet, we see there are different dimensions or aspects to that ministry, one of which is Christ in you, that He dwells in those who are His. We're going to see later that it's also, He mentions the same thing, same terminology, mystery, Christ. The Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews who are in Christ. Okay, and so, but it's always Christ. But it talks about, He'll talk about different aspects of what Christ does for us. Okay? So here he's just centered on Christ who is now revealed. The mysteries that the false teachers taught were meant to delude the people, to deceive the people, to take their attention from Christ. But God's mystery is what makes us wise and insightful, able to understand what's really going on. And so what Paul does is he he briefly and succinctly reveals more about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And, you know, there's always more to examine about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We've seen him laying out thing after thing in this letter, and he's going to continue to do that. And this is one more in a long train of things. And what he lays out this time is, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's a storehouse. He's a treasure house. He possesses great riches. You know, kind of like old Rockefeller kind of riches. Okay, Bill Gates kind of riches. All right? Not Steve Cavallaro kind of riches. He possesses great riches of wisdom and knowledge that produce understanding. In other words, he is even greater than Bill Gates. He is like the Fort Knox of wisdom and knowledge. If it's to be had, he has it. That is how great is his knowledge, which is infinite, and his wisdom, which is also infinite. Let's look for a moment at what wisdom and knowledge are. Let's start with knowledge. And I was reading John Frame's book, uh, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. Actually, I've been reading that for well over a year because uh, I started it. Then I started studying Revelation for the Sunday school stuff and had to put it aside. And now, hey, I can start reading it again. And so I was reading it on Friday and came across this section. I said, ah, that's how I wanted to say it. So this time I give all the credit to John Frame. Next time it's mine. (laughs) Steve Brown says I can do that, by the way. So first time credit, then it's mine. That knowledge is knowing that. In other words, it's knowing facts. It's knowing information. We talked about football. Let's go back to football for just a moment. What all the great quarterbacks do, and I'll put Tom Brady in that list, is that they, they know the playbook. They have a, there's a, a body of knowledge and information that they have to have in order to do their job, and all the great quarterbacks know that. They don't just make it up as they go along. Okay? I don't even know how many plays are in a a normal NFL team's playbook. 
but it's hundreds. He has to know all that kind of stuff in his head. Okay? And so do all the rest of the guys. They have to know what they have to do each time. So that's the kind of the knowing that. And as Christians, there are facts and there's information that we need to know. We need to know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, not just a vague idea of, oh yeah, he's the Son of God. Okay? We have to know that his, his death on the cross is as a representative of sinners and that he paid the price for sin, that it's a, to use the big theological terms, a substitutionary penal atonement. Okay? We have to know that even if we kind of get it down to kindergarten kind of language. Jesus died for our sins. Okay? Or as I told my, I told Jaden when she was much younger, Jesus took the spanking that we deserved. Okay? Sometimes we have to explain it that way. Or Jesus got grounded for me. However else you want to do it. For all the politically correct people who might be listening on the internet later on. Um, so there's things that we need to know. Wisdom, John Frame says, is knowing how. I like that. In other words, it's how to act in light of the that. What to do because of what you know. Let's go back to Tom Brady. It's not enough that he knows the playbook. He has to have wisdom so that when he's... Uh, when he's there behind the center and he's waiting for the snap, what he's doing is he's, he's applying his knowledge of their defense so that he knows what, how they're going to defend the Patriots and therefore calling the proper play from all of the options he just gave his teammates. Being able to read the defense and call a play, a prop, the proper play at the line of scrimmage. He has to know how to do that. This doesn't have to know just that. He has to know how. And not only that is when he gets the ball and he pulls back, and if it's a pass, he has to know how to go through his checkdowns, who to look for first. And if they're not open, I look for the next guy. Okay? He has to know how to recognize pressure from the defense and where to move so that he doesn't get sacked. Great quarterbacks have to know not just that, but how. And so for Christians, we have to know not just that, but how. I knew an elder in Florida. Uh, he was from a different church, but he helped us out a lot. And uh, one of the things that he would write in his Bible sometimes when his pastor was preaching was, Y-B-H. Yes, but how? In other words, he's saying, there's the theoretical knowledge. You've just given me the that, but, but you haven't given me the how. And that's a little more difficult to do in preaching. Okay? Preaching is largely about the that, not so much the how. But we try. We do. Okay? From Proverbs 2. It really connects with this. Because it's not like... Jesus is not like Fort Knox in that if, if you go to Fort Knox and you ask for some of that gold in there, you ain't getting any. Okay? Jesus is not like Fort Knox in that respect. For the Lord gives wisdom. 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Okay, there's those three words right there that are in this passage. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. He gives them. Okay? He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And so he, he brings it together and stores it. And when you need it, he's able to dispense it. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. And so, you know, kind of connecting this with Proverbs 2, we see that he gives wisdom in Christ in order to guard our path, in order to protect us, in order to prosper us spiritually. That's why he gives us wisdom. So, in other words, we know how to live a God-pleasing life. We know how to live in light of what is true. He gives this wisdom to those who love him enough to seek him with all their heart. You see that from Jeremiah 24. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Why? For they shall return to me with their whole heart. There's a sense in which... The more you seek him, the more, you know, the, the more your heart is his, the more you will seek him, the more you will seek to understand the scriptures, and the more wisdom he will give you. Right? If you don't love him very much, you're not going to seek him very much, and guess what? You're not going to receive very much wisdom. You will remain in relative spiritual immaturity. But if you pray for a heart that loves him and you receive that heart, you will be increasingly engaged in his word and you will be increasingly growing in wisdom. Because that's where he has it, stored up. And so Christ has all the knowledge and wisdom we need to become mature Christians. Let's go to the third part of this, which is, I think, found in verse 2. Well, I know it's in verse 2. Christ's wisdom encourages and unites the church in love. Paul, there in verse 2, is is basically laying out how he uses the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that he's gaining from Christ. That's what he lays out. And the first of those things, he says, that hearts may be encouraged. In other words, he used the wisdom and knowledge he receives from Jesus to strengthen weak hearts. Now, in the context of this letter to the Colossians, you know, why are they weak? Why are their hearts weak? They're discouraged. They're discouraged by the presence of these false teachers who are making life kind of difficult for that church because, yes, some people are leaving the church. It was becoming divided. And some of you who have been here a while know what division within a body does, how discouraging it becomes. And Paul understands that. And so he wants to lay out this treasure of wisdom and knowledge because these discouraged people need to be encouraged. They're losing hope. They're losing their grip. It's not just things like division within the body. Sometimes it's what you watch on the news. 
I didn't watch the news this weekend. I kept away from the news because I knew what was going to happen. The same thing that happens every time something happens. Non-stop coverage. Welcome to the instant media world. Okay? And when you watch that, you get discouraged. You get weak of heart. You get overwhelmed with the enormity of evil. Okay? You, you start to just ponder about the fate of the individuals. You begin to ponder about the emotional state of parents and of loved ones. And you begin to be overwhelmed and you begin to be discouraged. And so in some sense, the modern media is a plague to our souls. Because it's like a tsunami of information that can easily overwhelm us if we're not careful. Okay? So be careful. Don't overdo it with this stuff. Find out what's going on, but don't sit there and like mesmerized. You know, check back in about eight hours. See if anything's different. But it discourages us. We lose sight of our hope in Christ because all it's, all it is, is we see the evil and the depravity and we don't, we don't, they're not talking about the gospel. Okay? Now, the word he uses for heart is, is not, you know, medically, boom, 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 okay? Not the physical heart. And it's not referring to simply our emotions, but it's really referring to that innermost person. Just as, uh, you know, my, my prayer for illumination was drawn from Ephesians 3, and, and, and that's the idea right there, in our innermost person. To be encouraged or to strengthen is the verbal form of the noun paraclete. Now, you may not know that word. But in, G- in John's Gospel, when Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another counselor or another advocate, that's the word, paraclete. Some, it can be translated lawyer. Um, you know, in the, in the sense of someone who gives counsel. And so... Is that there is that idea of someone who is called alongside you to provide you with wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to be encouraged. He's calling someone there. It's like he's summoning Jesus himself to counsel them in the midst of this controversy because he's giving them the wisdom and knowledge that Jesus himself has. Wouldn't that be awesome sometimes to think about when you're going through a difficult time, if you could just sit down with Jesus and he could tell you what you need to know. And there's a sense in which he does do that by his spirit through the scriptures. That's what's going on. That's, that's part of what's going on in preaching is Jesus comes and speaks to his people to offer them counsel through the pastor. The second aspect of this is being knit together in love. What a, what a great turn of phrase that thing is. Knit together. I don't knit. Liz knits. Jaden's learning to knit occasionally. Jaden learns how to do all kinds of things occasionally. Um, learns how to play a ca- piano occasionally. Um, anyway, 
has the idea of kind of, uh, it can mean either bringing together, you know, two different things, bringing them together and entwining them so they become one thing, okay? Or it can mean also, oddly enough, to instruct. And so, you know, what's he getting at here? Is he talking about sort of two disparate pieces being brought together into one unit? Or is he talking about them being instructed together? If we look at Ephesians 4, we can see that second one. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That idea of they're being instructed together and growing into something, okay? That, that, that one body of Christ. That's attractive in a sense, uh, you know, because deception is dividing the church. And truth should unite those who love Christ. But I really think this is, really, I like that idea of the knitting together. It's, well, in a sense, the instruction, the truth is bringing them together. It's, it's making, though they were different, now they're becoming one. They're, they're being joined together in an organic sort of way. And that produces love for one another. That unity in the body also means that they love one another. And so we see that truth, scripturally, is covenantal. Because it's relational. It's meant to, to provide the boundaries for us to live in a community together. It's not just meant to tickle my intellectual ears and satisfy my curiosity intellectually. It's meant to bind us together in a community as a covenantal aspect to truth, precisely because God is a covenantal God. So it should build community. We have to be careful, particularly us in the PCA. Maybe we should say you guys, since I used to be ARP. Yeah, you contentious PCA people. Um, I'm now one of those contentious PCA people. I used to be one of those contentious ARP people. Maybe that's why they didn't want me around. Um, but I think like even this discussion of intinction, which is the dipping of the bread into the wine... There's an element in which we should understand the truth. We need to look at the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say? What do the Scriptures not say? We should be very clear about all of that. But, you know, as I think about this, um, you know, there has to be love, too. We have to do this in a way that preserves and maintains the peace as well as the purity of the church, and not do this in a way that's going to start splitting the denomination into chunks. If you want my thoughts on it, go to my blog. But it seems that some people are so all about the truth that they forget about the love, just like there are some people who are so about the love that they forget about the truth. Together. And part of what Paul is saying here is that you do not arrive at the truth individually, together. Even those who like to study theology on their own, what are they usually studying? The saints who have gone before, whether it's Calvin or Bavink or uh, Bullinger or uh, John Frame or... 
John Owen. They're studying in terms usually of the historic community of the church, but it also we need to study within the present community of the church, not one or the other, but both. Okay. I don't have a monopoly on the truth. And if you think I do, then you're going to build me into a cult figure. Now, isn't that a scary thought? Together, love and truth. So that we can reach all the riches of full assurance, meaning that we can be fully assured of the truth. That, that what we believe, that what we hold is what God has told us, what God has revealed. That we're not missing something important, which was the whole problem with the false teachers. They're saying, you've got some of it, but you don't have all of it, and I do. You're missing something important, but I can show it to you. No. It's all in Christ. Now, I can say to you, you need to know more of Christ than you know now, but I'm not going to say to you, I've got a secret. And I'll tell you about it if you want me to. Okay? And so, uh, you know, we, we, we reach this assurance as a community as we balance love and truth uh, like Jesus. I, I was watching on YouTube this week, someone had posted um, a couple of the guys from the Westboro Baptist Church were on the Russell Brand show. Now, how's that for entertaining? That was the height of entertainment. I mean, it was actually really funny. Um, but what you had was essentially all, and I don't say truth, they were, the Westboro guys are all about truth. I don't think they have all the truth. They're forgetting a few things. And then Russell Brand is all about the love, man. Why can't we all just get together? You know, who cares about all that other stuff? And they were both missing the point. What I summarized of the gospel, so to speak, I use those terms, that term very loosely, with regard to the Westboro Baptist Church, is essentially stop sinning. That's their gospel. That's what they're presenting to people. Stop sinning. That's not very helpful. (laughs) Not helpful at all. And so they come across as hard and angry and not motivated by love in the least. The gospel is that we can be united to Christ and therefore enjoy pardon and new life. And so there is a stopping of sin, but it's a stopping of sin because I'm connected to Jesus. And it's a stopping of sin because I've been declared righteous in Jesus. That's completely different from stop sinning. Whatever sin it is you got, you got to stop right now. Well, yeah, okay, you will as you're connected to Jesus. And so the the Colossians still needed to grow. They hadn't gotten there yet. And, And we do too. We haven't gotten there. And so we need to kind of explore the storehouse a little bit. You know, uh, the first installment of The Hobbit came out. 
You're not gonna, if you go to the movie, you're not gonna see this part, but I've read the book. And I, I love the scene where they send Bilbo in, Bilbo Baggins, the tiny little hobbit, to examine the storehouse of Smog the dragon. Now, of course, Thorin is looking for a couple of things in particular, but what happens is, I mean, he gets the layout of the enormous treasure that smog has accumulated by pillaging. Well, we are invited by God to come and to see the treasures of God, the enormous overabundance of wisdom and knowledge. Not so that we can steal it like Bilbo's going to, but so that he can freely give it to us as we have need. As we come to him in prayer, and that's really the how-to, it's knowing the scriptures. I mean, it's, it's that simple and that hard at the same time. But also prayer. It's coming and saying, I need wisdom for this particular situation. You know, there, there's a couple of wisdoms of, of instances right now that, you know, as a pastor, I've been, I need wisdom. Because, you know, I don't want to just be the bull in the china shop. Okay, so there's a, and one of those things cleared up for me, and I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And another, another thing that I'm kind of, you know, it's still working through, and I'm still confused, and, and that's okay. It's if I act while I'm still confused that it's not okay. The trust that in, in the proper time and in the proper way, I'll receive the wisdom of Christ. But it's not going to happen if I'm not in the Word and I'm not praying. So simple, so hard. Wow, I've gone on way too long this morning. So today there are still those who wish to deceive and divide the body of Christ, and they offer some version of elitist Christianity. Okay, If anything ever sounds like, like second-class and first-class Christianity, run away. Okay, uh, the, the elitist Christianity that twists the truth or speaks it without love. And, and in this context, we are to preach the storehouse of Christ, the storehouse of knowledge and wisdom to the church, by which he strengthens the church, which he, by which he unites it in Christ. Not just through our union with him, but actually we you know, act like we're united, like how we help that church in New Hampshire. That's a... That's a sign of being united together, okay? We help people to live in light of their union with Christ, receiving his benefits by faith. So don't settle for crumbs and scraps of wisdom and knowledge from who knows where, but look to Christ, the treasure house of all God's wisdom and knowledge. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Let's pray. Father, what a clear vision of Jesus and what he offers to those who love him by his grace. What a, what a clear demonstration, I think, of his supremacy and of his sufficiency. That he has what we need. And in this instance, he has the knowledge that we need and the wisdom that we need. 
And so help us to worship Him as such, and in part by coming as, as people in need of it. Seeking it. That He may glorify Himself by freely, graciously dispensing it to us. That we might know how to live in this world. This world filled with sin, with hearts bent towards sin. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.